Welcome to the Living Pearls Podcast, where we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ at the sanctifying work of God's Holy Word. I am Nate, your host. To all those who are tuning in, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I appreciate all of you, and now let us begin. I'd like to welcome you back to a brand new week, brand new episode. I pray that it is treating you well so far. Today is the start of a brand new chapter in our book study series, the book of James. We are in chapter two. And chapter two is basically divided in half in two parts. So we're going to talk about two things today, one a little more than the other. The first part we're going to be talking about partiality or favoritism that will be found in verses 1 through 13. And then alive faith versus dead faith, that will be verses 14 through 26. So with that being said, let's go ahead and get started right away. So the first thing I'm going to say to start this study series out is I hope that this book study is beneficial for you. In the past, when I've done these book study series, I've just put, you know, for the title, you know, like Colossians book study, chapter one. And then if it's like more than one week, it's like continued or final. Now I'm trying to do a little more basically of it being topical. And this is a study today that is very near and dear to my heart. It is one that, as a parent, you're going to need to listen to. If you are any believer, you're definitely going to need to hear this one. But there are some very important things to consider with especially this first half of the study about partiality or favoritism. So let's go ahead. We're going to read all the way to verse 13, and then break it down. Here's what it says. And this is the word of the Lord. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing fine clothes and say, You sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he had promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you've been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point 
has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to those who have shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So, there's a lot to unpack here. But first and foremost, here's what you need to know about partiality or favoritism. Jump all the way to verse 9. If you show partiality or favoritism, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, we're going to touch a couple different areas of practical life. First, and this hits home to me more than anything else, is the fact that we are not to show favoritism with our children. Now, if you have only one child, that's different, obviously. But I want you to listen to Genesis 37.4. And we just went over this study in our Have You Consider My Servant series. But listen to Genesis 37.4. But when Joseph's brothers saw that their father, Jacob, loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. There is a major issue with favoritism, with partiality. Because when you show favoritism to one of your kids, the others are going to have deep, deep resentment for not only the, the one that's favored, but the one who's showing the favoritism. Favoritism is never a good thing. Matter of fact, it destroys the morale. It destroys the spirit. And it's hard to do that because in our flesh, we are prone to do those things. Even my own classroom, I have people in my classroom, these young children, who do everything that I ask without complaining, without arguing, doing everything that I ask, and it's easy to show them more favor. However, there are people in my room right now who need my grace, who need my attention, need my focus, and they mess up on a daily and it, it's easy to show favoritism to the others that are, quote-unquote, the easy kids versus the hard ones. And I do my very best not to show any type of favoritism at all because I see what favoritism rots, and I'll tell you what it rots. It rots corruption, chaos, and discontentment. And so... As parents, let's get back on that track for just a second. As parents, you don't want your ki other kids to feel lacking, like they'll never measure up. And when you show favoritism, 
a lot of times it's not so much the the one that showed the favor is is the problem. It's the one that shows the favoritism. That's the issue. And it's easy to become jealous. And if you don't remember, some of you have been with me for such a long time that you remember the episode I did with my my dear brother Mike on the Site Beyond Site podcast. We talked about jealousy. So we actually posted that to our page as a long time ago. I would highly recommend you go back and check that out. But that's what happens when you show favoritism is jealousy is closely behind it. It will follow it. Let's just put it that way. It's going to follow it. But when we show partiality, we sin. And who are we sinning against? Yeah, we're sinning against our family that's not being favored. But the bigger picture, the bigger person we should be concerned with that we're sinning against is God. And the question might be, well, you said, Nate, that we, we have some practical areas. You talked about family. What else? How about this? The workplace. The workplace. Where I am at in my life, I have seen throughout my life the byproducts of favoritism and usually with without hesitation comes so many negative things. I'll talk about when I was younger and I'll talk about now when I'm older. I've seen it throughout my whole entire life. I've seen it even against my own son, which against me, that's one thing. And, but when you do it to my son, that's a whole different animal. But when I was younger, and I'm just going to tell you this quick story. When I was younger, I had worked so hard to be on the varsity basketball team. I was a senior, and again, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I was pretty good at basketball. I mean, I don't know if I could have played college ball or not. That's a whole different story. But it was, it was the year, and I was kind of like the quote-unquote big guy on the team. So I remember this game. So the first three games I started, and the fourth one was really special, for, and I still remember it to this day. It was our first home game. The crowd was hyped up, and we, the, the five starters were sitting you know, on the, on the bench while the team made like a tunnel. And they called their names one by one. Well, the biggest and the and the coolest thing was being the last guy called because usually that's the center. And the team kind of like shoves you back and forth because you're the big guy, you know, that you're the you're the big dog, if you will. And you know, the announcer's calling your name, your number, your position. You're you're all hyped up. You go center court, and you got you know we're you know, we're doing our hype, and then all of a sudden. It's time for the national anthem. The band plays it. You know, I got I'm holding back tears because I'm like, this is such a cool moment. And I don't remember if we even won the game, to be honest. But there was something that happened shortly after that. 
And there was a game in which uh, we lost, and then we had practice over Christmas break. And we had practice right before New Year's Eve. And our coach told us all to not be stupid, not to go partying, not to do drinking, nothing like that. And he looked, and the coach looked at me and goes, Right, Nate? And I had no idea what he was talking about. I was like, Yeah, well, I ain't going to do anything. I'm just going to hang out with my family. But I didn't realize what I had on because I had just taken my practice jersey off, and underneath my practice jersey was a Christian t shirt. So it was a little bit of a slap in my face, kind of mocking me. So the next week passes, and we come back to school. First day of practice, and of course, this is before cell phones were big, so I didn't know what was going on. But there was kind of a weird energy in the locker room, and so we got out, and the coach, well, you could tell, was upset. And as we got out to the practice floor, we had a team meeting, which is highly unusual, and basically was indicating to us that Four out of the five starters were caught at a party drinking. Cops were called, and they were suspended from the team. Now, we were about ready to play a very good team. So here I am stuck with freshmen and sophomores and a couple juniors. And I'm thinking, okay, well, I guess this is really my time to shine. A couple games go by, and nothing really – I mean, we got – we got stomped. Then something interesting happened. I was taken off the starting rotation, and those four stars that were caught at a party drinking were put back on the team, and I had about two minutes a game. And so at the end of my senior year, my dad stopped coming to my games because I told him it was pointless because I'm only playing two minutes a game. And I remember our last game, we were like an hour and a half away. And so that was always a fun trip up there. Not. So long story short, the coach comes up to me and tells me that Hey, Nate, I'm sorry about this year. We were trying to go with a little faster team, and I was actually pretty fast. So I was like, uh-huh, okay. And then he just said, well, is there anything I can do for you? I'm like, nothing really at this point. And then that was it. My basketball career was over. So now if my, all my eggs were in one basket, that I would have been just, you know, just completely distraught. But you know, God is greater than, than a game. But my point to you, that whole entire story was this. Favoritism leads to all negative things. And now let's fast forward to today. I see, I see favoritism today. Most people that win awards, and I'm not saying all, but most people that win awards, especially where I'm at, get it because of not because they're the best at their position, not because they're the most humble. And, and that's not, again, not speaking for all, because I know there's some, there's some people around me 
that have so richly deserved that. But there are people I know that when you see them win awards, you go, there is no way. And then it's not about awards, but my point is favoritism. I Because I know people around me that work so incredibly hard to get nothing for it. However, it goes back to this. We don't work for the things of men. We work for the things of God. And you see what favoritism brought. Now, as you start to finish this this first portion of favoritism, here's one thing you need to know about favoritism. Number one, God doesn't show partiality. He doesn't show favoritism. Romans 2, 11 says, for God shows no partiality. It doesn't really get any more clear than that. Acts 10, 34, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly understand that God shows no partiality. It, again, it doesn't get any clearer than that. Galatians 3.28 says it perfect. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It's crystal clear. And so, when we show favoritism... Jealousy, discontentment, negativity, all follow. But what about this? What about favoritism in the church? We just read about if you see a person dressed in fine clothing, they're rich, they have gold rings, because back then, gold rings were very rare. Not a lot of people had those. So someone with the wealth, oh, hey, guess what? We have a new member, and he he or she has, has the perfect hair, the perfect stature they got tons of money man they we could use that money for so many things see do you see the problem there but when 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 a person who is poor a person with dirty clothes comes in is it you know you go stand over there you you can be on my footstool verse six says you dishonor the poor man but here's the funny thing the rich man will oppress you and personally drag you into court. I'll, I'm going to tell you this quick story. I, it's full of story. I guess it's story time. But when we went through our church split, I'm not going to say this person's name, but there was a quote-unquote elder who had no business being an elder who gave, let's just say, several thousand dollars to the church. And when he was caught doing terrible things, secret things in the church, and was called out on it, he was threatening to sue the church to get his money back. This is exactly what we're talking about. It's the rich who oppress and drag you into court, and they blaspheme God's name. So again, if we're showing favoritism to the wealthy, and not those who are truly ripe and ready for the harvest. And a lot of times that's, I'm sorry, that's the poor man. It's the people we think don't deserve grace in the kingdom of God. Because it's going to be those people 
that will be, a, be in heaven before the rich man. And you see it all throughout Scripture, the disparity between the rich and the poor. The wealth people think that they got everything they need. Look at the parable of the rich young ruler. He had wealth upon wealth. And guess what? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, Jesus met him right where he was. Well, follow the commandments. Well, I've done all that since my youth. Well, so, and now what? That's it? See, he wasn't being honest with himself. He wasn't poor in spirit. He was rich in spirit. Well, aren't we supposed to be rich in spirit? No, poor in spirit means you are spiritually bankrupt, understanding there's nothing you can do to right the ship between you and God. He thought, I can do all these things. I'm doing them. So am I good? No, no. Here's, here's what you must do. I'll, get, I'll go right to your heart right now. Take all you possess, sell it to the poor, come follow me. Couldn't do it. Himself and his wealth were his God and his idol. He couldn't give it up. Now, verse 10 is very, very convicting in James chapter 2. This is something you need to have underlined. It says, For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at one point has become guilty of all. Because here's the thing. We're talking about partiality being a sin. And partiality, if that's what you struggle with, but everything else you are good, you are guilty of breaking every other commandment. Do you see why we need a Savior? Do you see why we need Christ? And here's the thing about Christ. He doesn't show partiality. He loves perfectly. He obeys perfectly. He speaks perfectly. There is no sin within him. Therefore, he was the fulfillment of the law that we break. That's why we need him. That's why we need a Savior, because we can't do it on our own. And if you read any book of the New Testament, specifically Romans and Galatians we just went through, no flesh will be justified before God. Unless that person has faith in the Son of God. So, being a transgressor of the law is a terrifying thought because every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and every person will give an account for everything that they've ever done. And that, my dear brothers and sisters, is a terrifying thought. But praise be to God because He gave us our only get-out-of-hell-free card, and that was Jesus Christ. He made a way that was clearly impossible. If you read all throughout Scripture, it's clearly impossible for a man to be in the right before God. He sent his Son to be that, be that way for us. Because in verse 13, there it is, For judgment will be merciless to those who show no mercy. Be merciful to all the people. Be merciful to all. But here it is. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is withholding a due punishment. 
and God withholds that, he shows us mercy by sending his son. He gives us plenty of time to understand his offer of grace and mercy through his son, Jesus Christ. He gives you plenty of time. So what are we doing with that time? That's the question. So with that question, we have to ask ourselves, what are we doing with the time that we have been given? Are we good stewards of the gift God has given us with time? And so that is a great segue into the second half of chapter 2, which is, do you have dead faith or do you have alive faith? Do you have spiritually dead faith or spiritually alive faith? It's a great question to ask. So, Let's go ahead and start in James chapter 2, verse 14, which says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. So, what James is doing here in these verses, he continues in a series of tests by which the readers can self-examine whether their faith is living or dead. This passage here contains a pretty easy test. A test that pulls the others together the test of works or righteous behavior that obeys God's word and manifests a godly nature. So the biggest issue here that most people face is, is James contradicting what is being taught in the rest of Scripture about faith, being saved by faith. That's not what we're talking about. Well, James is talking about how you, it must be of works. So if it's of works, then that contradicts the Bible. That's not what he's saying. Saving genuine faith is always followed by active obedience to God's word. We just read about being a doer of the word in chapter 1. Don't be merely hearers of the word who delude themselves, but be doers of the word. So, active faith means obedience to the words in Scripture, to the commands, to the do's and don'ts. And those don'ts in the Bible are guardrails. Because most people will say, well, we have this, we have this gift of freedom, we have, this, we have this free will, and yet God doesn't allow me to use it. That's not fair. Well, remember... Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. So we have to be careful with that. But true, genuine, saving faith is always followed by active obedience. And James gives us a very, very clear picture of what that looks like. If a brother or sister is without clothing in need of daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warm, be filled, 
I mean, and you don't give them what they need for their body, what use is that? And see, that's what that's what most people in the church do today. They affirm, I believe the things that God says. I affirm that the pastor is saying the right things. I agree with that. But yet I don't I don't live it out in my own life. I agree that we should help the homeless. We should feed them, clothe them, but I'm not gonna I'm, I'm not gonna lift a finger to do it. I agree that it's right, but I'm not gonna do anything about it. I agree that marriage should be uh, a very intimate personal relationship between a man and a woman only. I affirm that, but I'm not going to go out on a limb and say that to to the world. I'm going to keep that private. I believe that the gospel is of first importance in my life. I believe that, but I'm not going to go out and share it with anybody. Well, I, I believe that you know we should be spirit-controlled. I affirm that. But the other part about drunkenness, well, I do like to drink with my friends uh, once a week. I mean, I only get drunk once a week. It's not too bad. At least it's not every day. At least I'm not an alcoholic. So you see, you see the problem here. And it doesn't get any more crystal clear in verse 17. Faith with no works is dead. So you have to understand that comparing faith without works to words of compassion without acts of compassion. So we always, we like to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. But if you have are you a, if you're a compassionate person but you don't do anything with that, are you really a compassionate person? And think of it this way. You see someone on this on the street, it's freezing cold, you're in your nice warm car with your with your cup of coffee that you got from Starbucks or wherever you go. And you see them, you say, Oh, you know what? That's too bad. All right, let's go get some uh, let's go get some food. Do you see the hard the hard reality of that? And now I know what people say, well, certain people just take advantage and, and they take your money and so therefore I just want to get ripped off. If it's a gift, then you have no requirement to get that back. I mean, if you look at the model, what Jesus did, I mean, we're, let's go to it right now. John 21, verse 25. And it says, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that was that would have been written. So what is this telling you? That the world is not big enough to contain the volumes and volumes and volumes of things that Jesus did on this earth. His faith was met with complete action because Jesus has perfect faith because he is a source of faith. So, he modeled for us what it means to be a Christian. You cannot sit there and just profess it with your mouth. I believe in Jesus Christ, but never do anything with God's word. And that's where most of us 
fall into a lot of trouble. A lot of trouble. Now, let's go to verse 18 now. But someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, and you do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder. See, there's a problem. The demons believe in God, but they don't believe in Him in a sense that they are going to obey Him, that He is their Lord and their Master. They believe in a God, but they don't have the faith to believe in Him that leads to repentance and that also leads to obedience. You have faith and I have works. There is no distinction. There is no difference. True saving faith is hand-in-hand hand with works. We are not saved by works. And see, this is we've talked about this on the show many, many times. So I'm not going to dive into it super deep. But we are not saved by our works because the works don't result in our salvation. But works are the result of salvation. There's the difference. There's the difference. And verse 19 ought to, ought to really get our attention. Because believing in doctrine with head knowledge and nothing moving us towards obedience and being Christ-like is profession without possession. We profess the faith, but we don't possess the faith. And so we must be very careful on how we act. But listen to verse 20. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? And some people, they're, they're still stuck in that. They're stuck in their ways. This is what I've always been taught. This is how we've always been, been doing it. How can it be any different? This is the problem. Faith without works is useless. And what we just read before, faith without works is dead. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see, that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. What does perfected mean here? It means completed. And the scripture was, was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Verse 24, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In that same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works? When she received the messengers and sent them out by another way, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So, there's a lot here. There's, I mean, there's so much here. But see, Abraham, if he just said, oh, I believe in God, I believe in God. And then he was asked to offer up his son Isaac on the altar. And didn't do anything about it. It's just, it's just mouth, it's just lip service. And Jesus said it the best way. With their lips they praise me, but their hearts are far from me. 
we don't obey the word of God. We don't obey God because we're scared to death of him. We don't do it out of fear. We do it out of sincere love and gratitude for making what was impossible possible now to us through his son, Jesus Christ. It comes from the love that we have for God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy, Holy Spirit. And we are taking God's word as for what it is, the word of God. He is our Lord. He is our master. We are his slave. He commands, we obey. And we do that out of a sense of duty, yes, but it's because of loving obedience, wanting to please our Father. That, there's the difference. I'll give you this quick illustration. When I was young, and most of us have either good or bad experiences with our fathers, but what's better to, to honor what a father says by obeying what their father says out of the complete fear of getting, of getting beat if you step out of line or because of the goodness of your father, the kindness of your father that shows you, the patience that your father shows you, the grace that your father shows you, and the love that your father shows you, and you don't want to hurt your father's feelings. You want to honor him because of how good and kind he is. You see the difference? And that's how, that's how my father was. I didn't, I didn't obey him because I was terrified of him. I obeyed him because I love him, I respected him, and I didn't want to hurt him. There's a difference. And I know a lot of us grow up in households where we're terrified of our fathers, and if we step out of line, we're going to get whooped. And I understand that, but that's not who God is. And we can't, we can't paint God the same picture as our sinful earthly fathers. They're imperfect just as we are. But God is perfect. But going back to it, Rahab, remember with the spies? You're, that's your homework. Go look, go look up that story. If she just sat there and said, okay, I, I'm in. I'm going to do this. And by the way, she, she wasn't part of that nation. She was a harlot. But she heard of the works that God had done for them. She had faith in that. And well, I, I, it, she could have easily said, yep, I agree with it. It's awesome. God is great. And then she just sat there and did nothing. That's not active, genuine faith. I'm going to say this one last time. Genuine faith always is accompanied by action. James gave us two great examples. And there they are. It's right there. Now, verse 24 is where people get really upset here. Justified by works. This is not contradicting Paul's clear teaching that Abraham was justified before God by grace alone through faith alone. And for several reasons, James cannot mean that Abraham was constituted righteousness before God because of his own good works, because James had already stressed that salvation was a gift of God. If you read that back in chapter 1, verse 17, 18, okay? But two, the middle of the dispute, disputed passage, 
James quoted Genesis 15, 6, which clearly claims that God credited righteousness to Abraham solely on the basis of faith. And number three, the work that James said justified Abraham was his offering up of Isaac, an event that occurred many years after his first exercise of faith and was declared righteous before God. So you have to get the timeline right. So he's not saying that because of his action of offering up Isaac, that was the end-all, be-all of salvation. He, now he's righteous because of the, just that action alone. This was way before. This is way before Isaac in Genesis 15. So you have to get the timeline right. So if, if does that make sense? So we have to understand faith and works are together. With that being said, I pray that the Lord blesses and keeps you and gives you peace. Until next time, God bless you all.